Today's scripture reading is from Mark 9, 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. If you look at the founders of all the major world religions, uh, there's several things that they have in common. They've all overcome their enemies, and they've all lived to a ripe old age. The Buddha lived until he was 80. He was surrounded by his disciples when he died. Muhammad died full of years in the ruler of Arabia. Confucius died in his 70s, surrounded by his disciples, and honored as a man in his hometown. All of these religious leaders lived long lives. They were persecuted, yet they overcame their enemies. And as a result, and I'll use this term loosely, they were success- successful in leading a world religion. On the other hand, there were many leaders who came, they preached, they developed a following, then there was resistance, and they died at a young age. And the following scattered. We think of people like Jim Jones, who gathered a group of people, took them to Ghana, and then there was a mass suicide, and they all died and dispersed. Think of um, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. We can all remember seeing the pictures of their compound when they set it on fire and they all died. And all of their members, even the ones who lived, no longer worshipped David Koresh. All of these young leaders who died young were failures. Tim Keller says, because Jesus died in his 30s, he parts company with all the other successful world religions. He puts himself over in the category with all the failed world religious founders. Now this begs the question this morning, why would Jesus put himself over in the category with all the failed world religion founders? Mark gives us the answers this morning, and there's two. The first is, Jesus understood that redemption comes through the cross. And then secondly, Jesus understood that his kingdom was different than worldly kingdoms. His kingdom is an upside-down 
kingdom. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful this morning for the privilege to come and worship in this place. Lord, as Michael mentioned earlier, some are coming this morning and their hearts are heavy and anxious. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring about a peace in their hearts and their minds. Others are coming sad. I pray, Lord, that you would just wrap your arms around them this morning. Or wherever we are this morning, I pray that you would meet us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word. You promise that your word will not go out and come back void. So give us ears to hear. Give us teachable hearts for what it is that you want to do in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives this morning. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I encourage you to turn to your bulletins or you can open your Bible apps or your Bibles as we look at Mark uh, chapter 9. And the first thing that I want us to consider is that redemption comes through the cross. Now those of you who are parents, you know that the best time to have a conversation with your middle school or high school school um, kids is when you're in the car and you're one-on-one and you're traveling either to a soccer game or to school that's the time where you have a captured audience and that's the time where most likely they're going to listen to you and you're going to be able to find out what's going on in their lives well Jesus understood that the disciples they were no different and in verses 30 through 32 Jesus took advantage of their travel time to begin to teach his disciples Look at verse 31. Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now at the beginning of this verse, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now, to us, we don't have much comprehension of what that is, but to the disciples, they would have immediately thought, of Daniel chapter 7. Now in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel and the Israelites, they're in exile. And Daniel receives this vision. And in this vision, God shows him four beasts that represent four different empires. The Romans, the the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks. And these four mighty empires are, are coming against Israel. But in the vision that God gives Daniel, God sends the Son of Man, a mighty warrior, to come in and crush the four empires and to establish an everlasting kingdom. Daniel writes this in verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. According to Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is a military leader who is going to come and deliver God's people. He's going to destroy the four empires, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever and ever. But what is interesting about Jesus' teaching 
though he refers to himself as the Son of Man, he provides an unexpected twist to Daniel's vision. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come and he is going to establish God's kingdom, but in order to do so, he will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus tells the disciples, redemption of God's people comes through the cross. Jesus' perceived failure leads to victory. Jesus, Jesus says it this way in John chapter 12, verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In January 1982, Air Florida Flight 90 was parked at uh, Washington International Airport. There was a major ice and snowstorm. And so there was delays as they were trying to de-ice the plane. And so they de-iced the plane, and Air Florida Flight 90 took off down the runway. As it took off down the runway and began to lift over the Potomac River, one of the wings had so much ice on it still that it malfunctioned. And so that flight hit the bridge over the Potomac River. Those of us that were uh, young enough or old enough, we remember seeing the images. And that plane plunged into the river. And the only section of the river that was above water was the tail section. Everyone at the front of the plane, they perished immediately. And so those at the end, it opened up and you could see people trying to get out of the plane. And so the helicopter, they came And they would drop a rope, and there was a man by the name of Arlen D. Williams. And he would take that rope, and he would give it to another passenger, put it around them, and the helicopter would airlift that passenger out. Then the helicopter would come back, and Arlen D. Williams took that rope, he put it around another passenger, and they airlifted that passenger out. That kept happening again and again and again. And then the helicopter came back. And they were looking for Arlen D. Williams. But he had perished as that plane, the tail of the plane, had sunk into the Potomac River. Arlen D. Williams gave his life so that all those in the tail section of that plane could live. Jesus tells his disciples as they travel along the road, the Son of Man is going to give his life to save a world that is plunging into the depths of sin and chaos. Jesus, he'll be handed over to his enemies. He will be ridiculed and mocked. He'll be beaten. He'll be hung on a cross. He'll be pierced. And he will die. And then on the third day, he will rise from the dead so that all who profess faith in him might live. This is why Jesus put himself in the category with all the failed religious leaders. 
Jesus Christ died at a young age of 33 so that we might be saved. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus tells his disciples then as they walk along so that when his death happened, they wouldn't dismiss him like other failed religious leaders. But instead, they would remember that through his death, he defeated the four empires. And through his resurrection, he is going to establish his kingdom forever and ever. And what was the disciples' response? Look at verses 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask them, And as I was thinking about this, I can get it. I mean, they had read Daniel 7. They had thought that the Messiah was going to come. There was no mention of him dying. And so there was confusion in their hearts, of course. But they didn't even take the time because they were afraid to ask Jesus, could you explain what you just said? Now, I wonder two things for us this morning. First, What hard sayings of Jesus are you struggling to understand? What hard sayings of Jesus are you afraid to ask him? It's easy for us to look down at the disciples for their unwillingness to ask Jesus difficult questions. But if I'm honest, I also struggle to ask him those hard questions. It's hard for me to ask him, what does it mean, Jesus, when you say that we are called to be radically generous? What does it mean when you say that I need to take up my cross? What does it mean when you say that I need to flee lust like it's a plague? What what do you mean when you say that I need to take care of widows and orphans? What do you mean, Jesus, when you say that I need to take the plank out of my own eye? What does it mean, Jesus, when you say that I am called to walk in the fellowship of your sufferings? These are all very hard sayings of Jesus, and it's easier for all of us to simply ignore the reality of what Jesus came to do and what Jesus is calling us to do. But the truth is the truth. And if we call ourselves disciples, we need to lean in and we need to ask him so that we might be obedient to the truth. And so what hard sayings are you shying away from having conversations with Jesus about? And then secondly, do you believe that Jesus died for you and those sitting around you this morning? I'm going to read a quote from Keller. It's a long quote, but but bear with me. Has Jesus' death changed your life? Has it turned you inside out? Are you unusual? Are you remarkable in any way? If you are not, it's because you may know that he died. You don't really understand why he died. The penny hasn't dropped, or it's dropped far enough because that's what happened to the disciples. 
When Jesus died, they remembered this teaching. They remembered Daniel 7, and they moved on from what they understood that he died. They moved on to understand why he died. They moved on to understand that he died as a ransom for their sins and the sins of the world, to bring shalom into the world. Do you believe that Jesus died? And do you understand why he died? He died to save you. And if we understand why he died, then our lives will be radically, radically changed. So why did Jesus identify with the fellow religious leaders? First, we learn from Mark that redemption comes through the cross. And secondly, we see that Jesus establishes an upside-down kingdom. Not only did Jesus put himself in the category with the failed religious leaders because he knew that he must die to redeem the world, he also knew that he was establishing a kingdom that was very different from all the the so-called successful world religions of the world. Look at verse 33. Jesus and the disciples, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Mark tells us in verse 34 that the disciples, they kept silent. And why did they keep silent? They kept silent because as they were walking along along the way, what they were discussing was who was going to be the greatest among them. And I love, I love Jesus' response to them. He wasn't angry with them. He didn't rebuke them, though they were clearly in the wrong. Jesus is merciful, he's compassionate, and he is patient. He loves these guys. And because of his omniscience, he knew exactly what they were thinking. And like a gentle father, he takes this opportunity to teach them about his kingdom. George MacDonald, a great author, says the world is set up in such a way that it's like a pyramid. And the goal of everyone in the world is to get to the top of the pyramid and then have everyone under them serve them and bow down to them. The goal is to gain all the riches and gain all the success, to gain all the popularity, to be at the top. Jesus says in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant to all. Jesus takes this pyramid and he turns it upside down. He says to us, in his kingdom, we don't try to climb the pyramid and be at the top. Our goal is to be at the bottom. And everyone above us, our goal is to cheer them on to be for their success, to to fan in the flame of their gifts, to do whatever we can to make them a success. Jesus says, you and I are called to be servants of all. We are called to be last. And like Andy said last week, though some of us might be chief fans, the Bengals won. And because they won, hopefully in our hearts, we're all excited for 
Andy and the Bengal fans. And those of you, like myself, who are Carolina fans, this morning I'm thrilled for Walker and others that are Duke fans this morning. That's an upside-down kingdom, having our attitudes before others, cheering them on, serving them, not trying to gain power, not trying to gain influence, but giving that power away. Jesus' kingdom is the complete opposite of the world's. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And to further demonstrate his point, I love this. Jesus gives this visible illustration. In verse 36, Mark tells us that Jesus, he went and he took a child. Now, in our society, children are very important, almost too important and can become idols. But in ancient Near East, children were not that important. They literally were to be seen and not heard. And what does Jesus do? He took the most unimportant person in that group, in that home, a little three-year-old child, and he put him right in the center. And then what did he do? Jesus bowed down. He lowered himself. And he took that child into his arms and held him close to his chest. Jesus is saying to the disciples, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You notice he uses the word receive there four times. And the word in the Greek is dekomai, which literally means hospitality. And again, in the ancient Near East, hospitality wasn't just opening your homes and your hearts to your friends and neighbors. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was opening your hearts to strangers, to people that you would not spend time with. Jesus says in his upside-down kingdom, we are called to receive the least of these into our homes, into our lives, into our church. For in so doing, we are receiving not only Jesus, we are receiving God himself, the Father. We are to practice radical hospitality as individuals and as a church. We are to inconvenience ourselves, risk our own safety, safety and comfort to care for the least of those in our society. We are to take in the widows, and in our modern-day world, this also includes singles and orphans and those who come from broken homes, and we're to give them the seat of honor in our homes. We're to feed them, clothe them, love them, care for them, and make them a part of our family. We're to encourage them. We're to do everything in our power to make sure that they thrive. Hillsong Church, which we sing some of their music, it's an incredible church. When they have a concert, what they do is all the very important people, the VIPs, they are ushered down front. And they're, they reserve two or three rows, they're ushered down front, so everyone will see these very important people. Now what would Jesus say about that? 
according to this passage, I think he would say that's repulsive to him because that is not his upside-down kingdom. Now, interestingly enough, Billy Joel, at his concerts, he also leaves the, the first three rows of any concert open. And what he tells his manager right before the concert, he says, I want you to go outside the venue, find fans who don't have tickets but wanted to get in, and you usher them down front. Now, I have no idea about Billy Joel's faith. But what I do know is that Billy Joel gets it. He understands that in God's kingdom, The first shall be last. We need to elevate those amongst us that are disenfranchised. We need to turn the pyramid upside down. Jesus says in our text this morning, the practice of radical hospitality in your heart and in your home is a test of whether you are in the Father's house. And so the question for all of us this morning, which kingdom are you participating in and promoting? Which kingdom are you participating in and promoting? Are you participating in the world's kingdom, the empire? Are you participating in God's upside-down kingdom? Are you welcoming the least of those in our society into your homes and into your lives? Are you seeking to be served or to serve? Are you cheering on those around you and celebrating when their team wins instead of your own? You know, left to ourselves, this is an impossible task. But the good news this morning is that we have a Savior who chose to identify more with the religious leaders who died at a young age and were considered failures. We have a Savior who willingly suffered and died, and then on the third day rose from the dead. We have a Savior who ushered in an upside-down kingdom, and He's kind enough and gracious enough to invite you and me to participate in that kingdom. And this morning, we get to come to this table and we get to feast on Him. For in partaking of the bread and the wine, the Spirit of God comes. He fills us. He unites us with Himself. And He unites us with one another. Jesus offers radical hospitality at this table because none of us are deserving. And yet by His grace, for those of us who profess faith in him. He says, come. I love you. I care about you. Come. Be a part of my kingdom. Amen.